Welcome to the show. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I was late as a motherfucker. But I'm here now, so everybody can relax. Take a deep breath. Um, so, what do I have for all of you today? Well, the rift in the Democratic Party has officially blown up. And um, the claws are out from the establishment against Justice Democrats. They are not playing around. Um, And we're going to fire back. We're going to fight back. Because what they're doing is beyond grotesque. Now, we also have Trump weighing in on this feud between the Justice Democrats and um, Democratic leadership. You're not going to be surprised to learn who he sides with. In fact, uh, all of you will be like, well, duh, what did everybody expect? Um, Then we have the clowns over at Fox Business weighing in on the issue of retirement and uh, telling you to basically suck it up and enjoy the fact that you'll never uh, get to relax in your older years. And I'm going to go after Pete Buttigieg today pretty uh, viciously because he deserves it. So that's just, that's not even half the show that I went through there. I I got a lot more than that. So without further ado, sit back, relax, sip some lemonade or something, and um, we're going to jump right into it. Here we go. So Shoykat Chakrabarti is uh, one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats, and he's now Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's chief of staff. 
And um, he said the following on Twitter. I think the point still stands. I don't think people have to be personally racist to enable a racist system, and the same could even be said of Southern Democrats. I don't believe Sharice is a racist person, but her votes are showing her to enable a racist system. So she's talking, he's talking about a congresswoman. Where is Sharice Davids? I, I want to say Kansas, but I'm not totally sure. Um, but anyway, she's a very establishment Democrat, and what he's referring to is um, a vote that she cast, along with many other Democrats in Congress, to basically give the Republicans everything they want at the border. Now, the argument that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Justice Democrats and, uh, and Shoycott are making, they say, why would you just give them your votes? And, um, you know, Pence had promised, oh, later on we'll address some of your concerns at the border. And Pelosi was like, okay, sounds good. Um, And so the Justice Democrats are saying, why would you take Mike Pence's word for it? Why not ask up front for many things, um, some of our priorities at the border, whatever they they may be. Hey, these facilities are absolutely grotesque, and you got kids in cages, so, I don't know, eliminate the cages, increase funding, make sure there's enough um, showers and bathrooms and beds and things. But no, the the Democrats didn't demand anything because they're ridiculous. And um, so the Justice Democrats have spoken up on this, and the establishment is raining holy hell on them. So guess what happened after Shoykot said this? I think uh, it was days later, maybe even over a week later, the House Democrats' Twitter feed, they said the following. They quote-tweeted... Shoykot's tweet here, and they said, Who is this guy, and why is he explicitly singling out a Native American woman of color? Her name is Congresswoman Davids, not Sharice. She is a phenomenal new member who flipped a red seat blue. Keep her name out of your mouth. With, like, the clap emojis. Trying to be, like, cool and hip using the emoji sequence that they used. Yeah, disgusting. I mean, this is, how many times have we said it, man? This is the perversion of identity politics, where they use somebody's characteristics to try to shield them from any and all criticism. Shoycott is criticizing from the left, but to the House Democrats, doesn't matter. You're, you know, you're attacking a corporatist, you're attacking somebody who's part of our beloved establishment, So we are going to bring race into it and act like, how dare you speak about a a congresswoman of color like this? Keep her name out of your mouth. So so what's the rule? Are you just not allowed to criticize any um, person who happens to be a a woman of color? Is that the way it works? Because, by the way, hilarious, Shoycott's a person of color, too. But even, even if he wasn't, that wouldn't matter. He's criticizing on the substance, and they're invoking the race. This is why you have so many lefties who are now, like, totally turned off by identity politics, because they see what's happened. They see that, you know, identity politics used to be about, hey, there there are substantive injustices here where, you know, for example, a black person and a white person commit the same crime, and a black person is much more likely to get the death penalty solely because they're black, or, you know, 
white people sell drugs more often than black people, but black people are more likely to get arrested for selling drugs than black people. Uh, black people are more likely to get the mandatory minimums and longer sentences compared to white people for the same crimes. You, it used to be when you talk about somebody's identity, it was in the process of making a substantive point about how things are unequal and that should be addressed. Now, corporate Democrats are just using identity as a shield to deflect all criticism. You can't say anything, uh, anything against um, women or people of color because they're in the establishment and it doesn't matter how many bad decisions they make, they're still women and people of color, so shut up. That's what they're doing here. Um, so, but if you think that's it, oh boy, they're not done coming after Justice Democrats yet. They really kicked it into overdrive because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez finally responded to Nancy Pelosi. Because Nancy Pelosi kept coming after her, kept coming after her in these like really snide, weaselly ways. Um, and of course, you know, I'm referring to how long ago, I don't remember how long ago it was, but she said, oh, they're in favor of the green dream or whatever you want to call it. Acting like, oh, it's totally unrealistic and so silly and how could anybody be in favor of that? I mean, imagine back during FDR trying to get the New Deal passed, you have leadership of the Democratic Party, other leaders going, the New Dream or whatever, and he's trying to get that passed. What the fuck are you doing? You're supposed to be on her side. You're supposed to be pushing for these things. But no, you're against her. And then she said, oh, they have their Twitter and their whatever, their public whatever, but they only have four votes and that's it. That's the other thing that Pelosi said. So again, downplaying, oh, are you massively popular and have you sparked renewed interest in politics because you're somebody who's uncorrupted and you're fighting for the people? Well, shut up. Because, you know, whatever, you're just like popular in the Twitter sphere and that's not worth much. Oh, really? It's not worth much? Do you not understand that this is modern politics? And AOC even said it in response. She was like, I haven't, I haven't dialed for fundraising dollars for uh, my campaign once since I've been elected because I can raise money through small dollar donations using social media. But still, like Nancy Pelosi and these corporate Democrats want to campaign like it's 1990-whatever. And like burn money on TV ads and pick up the phone and call people and waste all their time fundraising as opposed to actually fighting for the people. So she kept going after and going after. And that's when, you know, Nancy Pelosi and the establishment took the gloves off. And they were like, oh, okay, we can play this game too. But see, they're so transparent because they don't, they have no argument. That's, that's what they came up with for the, um, for Shoycott. You're criticizing a woman of color. She's a woman of color. End? <laughs> End? They, like, they think that's an argument in and of itself, but if you think that's an argument in and of itself, well, guess what? I got news for you. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a woman of color. Shoikha Chakrabarty is a person of color. Um, the leadership of Justice Democrats now, Alexandra Rojas, she's a person of color. So you can't, like, but that, see, this goes to show you how little they care about being substantive, is that even though they know that, they're still going to make the charges and act like what? Shoycott's racist? <laughs> like, is that the argument you're making? Because it seems like that's the argument you're making. What are you going to do? Say Alexander Rojas is racist? Really? Is that the argument? I mean, but this is, they have nothing to say. And so they just go back to their bag of tricks. And uh, it, it just, it falls so flat. By the way, all the responses there were people shitting on the House Democrats. The House Democrats uh, Twitter feed. The House Democrats. They're, they're going after 
the chief of staff for one of their most popular Congress people. You started the Civil War. We didn't start it. You were the corporatists. You sold out to corporations. You know, you're representing the establishment. We're just fighting back. You fired the first shot, and they're doing it again. So they go after Justice Democrats, and then when Justice Democrats respond, they're like, oh, oh, unfair, so unfair. So here's the next thing that they did. Um, this is in the New York Daily News. A Democratic leadership source who only spoke on the condition of anonymity, how brave, was harsher and said the following about Justice Democrats. Justice Democrats in general are trust fund kids who are funding this with their parents' money, the source said, blasting the progressive group as elitist for criticizing black lawmakers from poor districts who take corporate donations. It's offensive for congressional black caucus members when these elites are looking down on them when they don't have the financial ability to say, I don't want that money. Unbelievable. The argument is, we have to be corrupt. What do you mean? We have no time to be corrupt. i got to take that sweet, sweet corporate cash. Where's that line end, by the way? I'm sorry, i got to take the Goldman Sachs cash. It's Goldman Sachs. Sure, they're a criminal organization that gets away with stuff all the time, and they've you know, rig the economy in their favor and screw over regular people and kick people out of the houses. I don't, I gotta take, I don't have a choice. I'm so, I got, my hands are tied. I gotta take the Raytheon cash. So what? That's gonna lead me to support intervention in Syria and support intervention in Iraq uh, and staying in Iraq and staying in Afghanistan and doing more bombings. But I, my hands are tied. I gotta take the cash. Do you think anybody's stupid enough to believe this? Nobody believes this. Especially because we came along and broke the mold, Justice Democrats did. We proved, no, we're gonna run. Well, Bernie was the real OG, but we came along and we said, no corporate PAC money, period. No billionaire money. We're going to raise our money through small-dollar donations. We proved that you could win doing it. Yes, we're at a financial disadvantage, and that is because you guys are massively corrupt, but we still won. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was outraised, what, 10 to 1 against an incumbent, powerful Democrat, and she won? So don't – it's nonsense. How could you? How could you criticize a, a, a congressperson who's black? who wants to take corporate money. You obviously can't criticize them on that because they're people of color. We have a lot of people of color running in Justice Democrats, and they're uncorrupted. So they, uh, there's, they're non-point. But more importantly, they're arguing that Justice Democrats is trust fund kids who are funding this with their parents' money. Notice, they didn't mention anybody. Why didn't they mention anybody? Because none of us are trust fund kids. I got a political science degree, and then I worked in the car business before I get into politics. We're not trust fund kids. Jank Uger's not a trust fund kid. We're, we're YouTubers. That's two of the four uh, original co-founders. Then you got Shoycott, who, uh, who worked from the ground up but got wealthy on his own merits. And then you have Zach Exley. Zach Exley's been in Democratic politics for a long time. I know nothing about his background beyond that. But none of us were trust fund kids. And by the way, none of us are in Justice Democrats anymore anyway. Now Alexandra Rojas is leading Justice Democrats. She's not a trust fund kid. She's not a trust fund kid at all. She's from a working class background. So here's the reality. They have no argument and they're just lying. You guys know me. You don't hear me bring up the L word often, liar. Why? Because I only like to trot that word out when I'm really sure that somebody saying something and they're not just factually wrong. I don't like to put bad intent on people. I always assume ignorance over bad intent. So if they make an argument and the argument happens to just be wrong, 
my gut, my gut instinct is to say, okay, they just don't know. It's not that they know they're wrong and they're going out of their way to lie. And I actually hate it when people jump to the lie thing first because it's usually not the case. Usually you sh- could just rely on ignorance because people are oftentimes very ignorant. But no, this is an issue where they're smearing and they're smearing on purpose and they're just flat out making stuff up. And you want to talk about projection, they call Justice Democrats elitist. The group that takes no corporate PAC money, the group that takes no billionaire money, the group that raises through small dollar donations only, the group that is based on ideas, populist left ideas to fight for working class people of all backgrounds, they're the elitist ones. You have got to be kidding me. So I just want everybody to understand, this is what happens when you actually become a threat, okay? This is what happens, is they will smear you and they will come after you 700 ways to Sunday. It doesn't matter that the arguments make no sense. It doesn't matter that they're actually oftentimes very silly. It doesn't matter that it's sheer projection. The claws are out, and they're going to come for you. So I just need everybody to understand that, because this is the future. The future is the establishment Democrats, the corporate Democrats, coming after the populist left, the uncorrupted, the justice Democrats. They're going to come after them viciously. And then every time justice Democrats respond to the smear attacks, they're going to go, oh, how dare you? That's below the belt. You just said that justice Democrats is from trust fund kids who are elitist. None of us have a trust fund. None of us are elitist. Our candidates don't even take corporate money. So just under, everybody needs to understand what's happening here because this is what we're going to see a lot of in the future. And if they think we're just going to fall in line, I got bad news for them. I got really bad news for them because we're the new generation of leadership. You know, isn't it – I've made this point before, but I'll make it again. Isn't it fascinating that Justice Democrats, a group that didn't exist before the 2016 election, we come onto the scene, we do incredibly well, we knock off one of the top – Um, Democrats in the country in Joe Crowley. And our candidates, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, Ro Khanna, we have all these Justice Democrats, and guess what? They are the ones with the highest profile in Congress. Stop and think about that. So people know Nancy Pelosi and they know Chuck Schumer, but the only reason they know them is because they've been Democratic leadership since roughly 1787. So they're just known because they've been there forever, and they're Democratic leaders. AOC arrived seven and a half minutes ago, and she's already maybe the most recognizable name in Democratic politics at the moment. Not one of the, maybe the most recognizable. Ilhan Omar, same thing. Why? Why? Why is that? Because they're not just fading into the background. They're not just going along to get along. They're not just, oh, yes, I'll fall in line and vote for whatever terrible proposal you want me to vote for. No, they're speaking up. And they're doing the right thing. And they're representing the people. And in response to that, they get smeared nonstop, day in and day out, from the likes of Fox News. Ilhan Omar's anti-Semitic. They say AOC is stupid. They smeared nonstop. So they get attacked from the right. And also now the claws are out from the corporate Democrats. Note this next time they come to you talking about unity. Note this. Because it's a trick. It's a scam. 
They, they only scream unity when they want you to fall in line behind establishment ideas and shitty ideas and corporatist ideas. Never works the other way. It's never, oh, well, I mean, we believe in unity, so I'm, I'm obviously not going to go after AOC and say that Justice Democrats are elitist trust fund kids, a total lie. No, no, no. They were fine doing that. So just know this is the future because it ain't going to stop. It's going to keep going. They're going to do, they're going to do as many fucked up things as the right does. So it would behoove you if you're on the left and you're in this democratic civil war to recognize the reality. In other words, you don't have to, you don't have to go along to get along and like, you know, pretend like, no, no, we actually support the other Democrats. We're for unity. Let's be honest. Let's be honest here. Some Democrats are Democrats in name only. They really care more about corporatism than they do about any conception of leftism. So you don't have to be allies with them because they are not allies with the American people. Okay. Okay. Let's go to um, Trump jumping in on this feud. So President Trump was asked about the feud between Democratic leadership and Justice Democrats. And um, I'm not at all surprised with his take here. Some people are, but let's take a look and then we'll break it down. Well, I think Cortez, who kept Amazon out of New York, and they don't like her for that, thousands and thousands of jobs, I think Cortez is being very disrespectful to somebody that's been there a long time. I deal with Nancy Pelosi a lot, and we go back and forth, and it's fine. But I think that a group of people is being very disrespectful to her. And you know what? I don't think that Nancy can let that go on. A group of people that came from, I don't know where they came from. I'm looking at this Omar from Minnesota. And if one half of the things they're saying about her are true, she shouldn't even be in office. But Cortez should treat Nancy Pelosi with respect. She should not be doing what she's doing. And I'll tell you something about Nancy Pelosi that you know better than I do. She is not a racist, okay? She is not a racist. For them to call her a racist is a disgrace. Okay, so let's break this down. First of all, um... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was asked about that because I think from what she said in the past, people implied the Hill wrote a big headline that said Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says Nancy Pelosi is racist or like, oh, won't let young women of color speak up, something along those lines. So reporters went to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez after this fact and asked her, hey, do you think Nancy Pelosi is racist? She said, no, I don't. So this is being... This was misreported, and then now in the aftermath, people are still running with that. Now, I said in my original segment on this where I touched on this, I said, 
don't make it about race at all, because then the conversation becomes, is Nancy Pelosi a racist? And that's where all the focus is. And it misses the, the actual picture and the reality, which is, is Nancy Pelosi a capitulator to Republicans? And is Nancy Pelosi a corporatist? The second you make it about race, then that's the entire conversation that's about race, and you look ridiculous, you meaning Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but if you kept your eye on the ball and focused on, this has nothing to do with that, it has to do with, are you a capitulator to Republicans giving them everything they want, and are, are you a corporatist, are you weak? Well, then you win that conversation all day long. So notice now, because the original reporting, this is what Republicans will seize on, this is what mainstream media seized on, and he, now he keeps repeating it. Oh, she's not a racist, she's not a racist, she's not a racist. Great, it's a moot point. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez agrees. She mentioned that um, in, to a reporter, I think from CNN, afterwards. So now you could argue, hey, she should have been more clear early on. Fair enough, and I agree with you on that point. But now that's a moot point, and we can move on from it. So I'm going to show you Trump's tweet in a second, but first let's respond to some of what he said here. Notice how he literally has no argument. He says, oh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is being disrespectful to Nancy Pelosi. She should show her respect. That's not a point. That's not a point. And no, I really find, I find it incredibly condescending and pedantic that these older lawmakers are making points like that, which sounds more like a, a, a parent saying to their kid when they're in the back seat and you're on a long family drive, turning around and going, oh, pipe down now, kids. Show respect to one another. Show respect to your elders. It's like, that's not, no, you're not actually making an argument. You're not making a point. You're just saying, this is what I would like to have happen. I would like to have you be quiet. I don't give a fuck what you want. I got news for you. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a congresswoman. Her voice is massively important. doesn't matter that she's younger than you. doesn't matter at all. That's totally irrelevant. Oh, she should show respect. Show respect? No. You know who she shows respect to? Her constituents. That's who she's showing respect for, and that's why she's fighting back against the likes of Nancy Pelosi, who just gave you everything you wanted at the border and took Mike Pence's word on it. Like, oh, uh, we'll address some of your concerns later, but shut the fuck up. Uh, She should show some respect. She's a grown-ass woman. You might not like her, but she's a grown-ass woman. She can make her own decisions, and you're not making a point. Imagine it worked worked the opposite way. AOC comes out and says to Nancy Pelosi, you should show some respect, or AOC says to Trump, show some respect. Everybody would be like, what? What a weird thing to say. Like, are you, do you actually have an argument to make, or are you just going to, like, randomly try to tone police and mood police people? You're not saying anything. That doesn't mean anything. It's like, you know you have no point, so you just want them to fall in line. So you're like, show some respect. Um, by the way, he also says that uh, she's not liked because she killed the Amazon deal in New York. The reason she killed the Amazon deal is because she's against corporate welfare. She doesn't want massive amounts of taxpayer money going to fund uh, one of the richest guys in the world, might be the richest guy in the world, Jeff Bezos, over $100 billion, and New York taxpayers like myself have to pay for a helipad for this asshole? She killed it because she's against corporate welfare. What happened? I thought you were against corporate welfare. I thought you were against big government. Unbelievable. Uh, And then now let's get to his tweet because he said, This Ilhan Omar, I don't know where they came from. You don't know where they came from. Here's what he said. 
so interesting to see progressive Democrat congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are com- a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world, if they even have a functioning government at all, now lou- loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the, g- the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? Then come back and show us how it is done. These places need your help badly. You can't uh, leave fast enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy to quickly work out free travel arrangements. He literally is making the go-back-to-where-you-came-from argument. Now, Let's say I was a congressperson and I went after Trump. What are the chances he would say something like that to me? Zero, right? Because I'm a white dude. But for these women, yes, women of color, there's a reason why they're singled out, and there's a reason why these arguments are used. I got news for you. He says these congresswomen should go back to the countries they came from. Three of the four that he's talking about are from America are born in America. And Ilhan Omar is the only one that's not, but she's also American, and she's a congresswoman. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, they're from the United States of America. So three of the four, and he says congresswomen, so plural. In his mind, he just thinks, I don't know, they're not white, so far and enough. Go back to where you came from. Look at the mindset. The mindset is, the default is, well, come on, this is America. It's white people. It's white people. So you're, you know, a woman of color, a progressive woman of color. I mean, just go back to where you came from. Those countries have problems. Go help them. But they're American. By the way, in a weird way, Trump is correct by saying, the government, the government's where these, these uh, congresswomen come from are um, incredibly corrupt and inept. That's right. (laughs) But that's because they're from the United States of America, and you're the president of the United States of America. Man, imagine being so dumb and so xenophobic and bigoted that you type out the tweets that he typed out here, and you hit send, and it doesn't even occur to you as you're going through it, like, oh, maybe I should just double-check real quick and see where they're from. (laughs) Because, again, it's not even really, it's not about that. It's about foreign enough because you're women of color. So that, that's automatically put in a different category from a true American. That's the thought process. And notice he did this to Barack Obama, too. He was, the reason why he be, became a political figure at all is because he, ever since he was on The Apprentice, he would go around giving interviews talking about how... Maybe Obama's not born here. Maybe Obama's born in Kenya. I mean, can we see the birth certificate? Obama had already shown the birth certificate, and Trump would go around doing shows saying, you want to show the birth certificate? What do you mean? He's got to show the birth certificate. And then, uh, you know, Obama showed the long-form birth certificate, the short-form birth certificate, and everything in between. They even had an announcement in the Hawaii newspaper for when he was born. And Trump's like, ah, let me see the college transcripts. It's almost like, by default, his assumption is, you're not white, so I'm supposed to think you're American? That's ridiculous. Obviously you're not. Come on, let's be serious here. And he's letting that be known to the world. He used the, 
laziest, bigoted argument you've ever seen. Go back to where you came from argument. Go back to, okay, so Rashida Tlaib, go to Detroit. <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, go to the Bronx. That's, that's what it is. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Like, you would think they would at least evolve a little bit and dog whistle a little more. This is a human whistle. This is a fucking foghorn if I ever heard it. You would think they would evolve it a little to cloak it a little more, but no, he's using the go back to where you came from, and he's using it to three or four of them are born in America. And the one that's not born in America is still American and still loves this country. And when she critiques this country, Ilhan Omar, she's trying to make it better. And notice, Trump can run on the slogan, make America great again, again, meaning it's not great right now. We've got to make it great again. It's not good now. It's bad now. But then if Ilhan Omar comes along and says, this country, we're not, we're not doing well in this country, they go, oh, you hate America. Love it or leave it. Get out of here. She's saying the same thing. She's saying, hey, the country is not in a good place right now. We've got to fix it. But somehow that's perceived differently than when Trump says the same thing. I wonder why. That's just the saddest thing I've ever seen, man. That really is. So notice the notice how little he actually has to say. Because the final point is, why is he signing with Nancy Pelosi and not even really giving an argument as to why? I'll tell you why. He knows he can work with Nancy Pelosi and get some of what he wants. That's why. So it's easy for him to chime in on the side of Nancy Pelosi here. He know Nancy Pelosi literally, in the fight that sparked all of this, Nancy Pelosi gave the Republicans what they wanted on the border. So why is he siding with Nancy Pelosi? He'll get a lot more done with Nancy Pelosi. The claws are out more so for the people who are going to fight him tooth and nail on virtually everything. So that, that is the real logic behind it, the real rationale behind it. But notice when he has to actually form a coherent argument and not say the quiet part loud, that's the quiet part. What does he say? You're disrespectful. Show some respect to your elders. Show some respect to your elders. And you go back to where you came from, Wow. Really embarrassing, to be honest with you. I mean, this is incredibly embarrassing. So, but you know what? Go ahead. Keep going. Because the more you and the more Nancy Pelosi come after these new, uncorrupted Democrats, the higher their profile becomes and the more people like them. So it's going to have a backlash effect. a little bit now about we're going to pivot to Medicare uh, excuse me, not Medicare for all, Fox Business and their commentary on retirement. They've been doing this a lot recently and um, it's just as stupid every time. Alright, let me set this up for you. So the other day, Fox and Friends did a segment where they were talking about how wonderful it is that we live in a country where you have the freedom to work three or four jobs to pay the bills. Yay! They actually are spinning that as like, oh, it's glorious. 
Isn't it great? It reminds me of back when George Bush said this at a rally. Somebody asked him a question, or it was a town hall event or something like that, and somebody said, hey, I'm working three jobs to pay the bills and this and that, and they go back to Bush, and he's like, isn't that great? Uniquely, uniquely American, isn't it? And, but he obviously didn't get it all that that person was saying, oh, my God, this is terrible. Why can't I make enough money from one job to live? I work a full-time job. That should allow me to survive and live somewhat comfortably. And George Bush, right over his head. Fox people just this week made the exact same argument. They think it's wonderful. We worked three or four jobs to maybe survive. Yes. Well, now we have the next logical step. They're talking about retirement here. And the clowns over at Fox Business um, are talking about a new poll. They bring up a new poll on this issue. And here's their response. These kind of polls are already, always around, right? Uh, Bankrate does some things and other folks, but it's always a, a, alarming. 32% uh, of people say they were, they were retired before age 65, which might be unrealistic, but 23% said never. Uh, is that worrisome for you, Donald? It uh, doesn't worry me personally. I, I guess I'm one of those people who plans never to retire. I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, what do people do when they retire? You know, how do you spend a day? I mean, is bowling that interesting? Is fishing that interesting? I mean, I, I happen to love my work. Why do I want to stop it? You know, it's not like it hurts. Why would I stop it? This is great. What a great country where we have the opportunity to keep working. What a miracle where our lives are long enough and we're healthy enough and mentally alert enough so that we don't have to retire like generations before us. This is a great it is a blessing to never retire, to work until the day that you die. Now, maybe there's 10% of the population, 15% of the population that happens to be doing the exact thing that they want to do, and they do love their job with all their passion, and it doesn't even feel like a job to them. Sure, for that 10% or 15% of the population, you talk to them, and I'm sure they're like, yeah, right on, man. I'm with you. But the overwhelming majority of people in this country are not in love with their job. They're just paying the bills. And they've taken the least bad option to pay the bills, to look after their family, to raise their kids, I mean, what a, a ridiculous notion, and it really makes you wonder, is this just flat-out rank corporate propaganda, or is this something that this silly human being actually believes? And I don't know the answer to that. Maybe it's a little bit of both, but it is embarrassing nonetheless. And let me also say, I don't think Republicans should ever win another election ever again, because this is, this is what their actual philosophy is when they... When they have these rare moments where they tell you what they really think, it's stuff like this. It's stuff like, I don't think everybody should have health care. What? I think you should probably be, be, be able to go um, bankrupt from medical bills. What? I don't think you should have any uh, paid vacation time either. I think that that's d stupid and dumb, and we should get rid of that. I don't think if you work a full-time job, you should make enough money to survive. I don't think you should ever retire. I think we should bomb, like, 12 more countries when they're being honest, this is the stuff that they say. How on earth do we live in a country where that party still wins elections? 
I'll tell you, because the Democrats, as a general rule, the establishment Democrats certainly never stand up for what the correct position is supposed to be. Imagine if you had a strong Democratic Party that stood on the mantle proudly of living wage, Medicare for all, free college, you know, um, retirement by whatever, age 60, um, paid vacation time. If, if this was every time a Democratic politician opened their mouth, this is what they're talking about, and they're also pointing out how the Republicans are against all this stuff, make the Republicans play defense on this. Hey, they're against retirement. They want you to work until you croak. You understand that? They want you to be miserable your entire life. We want to let you retire. We want you to be financially secure in your retirement. We think, yeah, you should get to choose what you want to do with your time, including bowling, fishing, golfing, reading, whatever the fuck it may be, laying on a beach. The idea that, like, you know, oh, I mean, what is there to do? Uh, Like, everything. There's everything to do. Everything. Everything. I I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to, like, bowl and fish? Yes. Yes, that is exactly what we're going to do, and we're going to fucking love it. Thank you very much. We're going to go to the movies. We're going to, you know, lay out on the beach. We're going to bowl. We're going to fish. We're going to golf. We're going to fucking lawn bowl. I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want to do, and you ain't going to say shit about it, dog, because you can piss right off. I'm not taking advice from you. No retirement. Get the fuck out of here. Are you kidding me? No retirement. Most people busting their ass at some job they don't like, and you're going to come in at the end and say, don't you want the freedom to be here until you die? What? So it would be lovely if Democrats just nonstop pointed this stuff out and ran against it because then Democrats would win every single election. He really called it an opportunity. When did you want the opportunity to work until you die? Again, 10%, 15% of the population working a job. Let's go nuts. Even as high as maybe 20% of the population working that perfect dream job that doesn't even feel like work. Go right ahead. You know, you can work until you die, and you'll probably love it. But most people are just paying the bills and fitting into this society where they can, you know, just looking out for their loved ones and just trying to make it through. So they don't acknowledge that this is the reality of the world that we live in, that it's it's not like the way our economy functions right now it really incentivizes everybody to feel fulfilled and like, oh, here you go. Do whatever kind of thing really floats your boat, whatever kind of artistic thing. Like not everything that everybody loves is marketable. Like that's what our society rewards. Oh, is it marketable? Is, is the thing that you love marketable, yes or no? For most people, the answer is No. So we have to take into account in our analysis that your economic worth is not the same thing as your human worth. You have an economic value in a capitalist system, and it's only so much. But as a human being, you have a human worth, and in our current system, that's not – they don't care about that. They say, you know, your human worth is basically zero. We don't care about that at all. All we care about is your economic worth. And that's how you get miserable people. And that's how you get record numbers of people on antidepressants. And that's how, you know, you have a, a mental health crisis and you have people overworked and, the, um, you know, the average age of death is, is coming down for the first time since uh, the Industrial Revolution because people are overworked, people feel miserable, people feel trapped. 
And this asshole's answer is more of the same. Make it even worse. So it's just disgusting and embarrassing. But hey, at least in this case, they're being honest. And they're really telling you, like, yeah, no, I will take the mantle of being anti-retirement. These are the same people who are anti-maternity leave, anti-paternity leave, anti-vacation time, anti-living wage. They just want you to wake up, go to work, shut the fuck up, you know, to be, be this um, machine that exists solely for your corporate overlord. That's his answer. Now, if you can't point that out and run against it and be successful, wow, you got problems. Okay, let's take a break when we come back. Pete Buttigieg has some new thoughts for us on Medicare for All. Um, You're not going to like them. And then Tucker Carlson sort of comes out as a climate change denier. Wow. And then um, a federal judge blocked one of the only good things that the Trump administration ever did. And that is terrible. So stay right there. We'll talk about all that and more.
All right, we're back, people. Okay, uh, we got Pete Buddha Judge, and he's getting worse and worse. I have to say, he's uh, progressively. No pun intended on the use of the word progressively. Getting worse and worse, and you'll see what I mean. <clears throat> so Pete Buttigieg has some new thoughts for us on Medicare for All. Take a look at this. White House hopeful Pete Buttigieg questioned the legitimacy and popularity of some of the more progressive plans laid out by his fellow 2020 candidates. The South Bend, Indiana mayor told CNN's David Axelrod Saturday on the Axe Files that Medicare for All and free college tuition plans championed by progressives in the race are, quote, questionable on their merits and, quote, pretty far out from where Americans are. I do think that we should be realistic about what's going to work and just flipping a switch and saying we're instantly going to have everybody on Medicare just like that isn't realistic, Buttigieg told CNN. I think that when it comes to a lot of these policies that we're being pushed to do, say that we can pay down the last penny of tuition for any student, including the child of a billionaire, these are things that are questionable on their merits. And of course, also pretty far out from where Americans are, he added. Okay, so first and foremost, I am floored at the ability of politicians like Pete Buttigieg to say things that are so objectively untrue with a straight face and to say it so casually like they're the ones who are keeping it real. Um, Every poll shows that Medicare for All is an overwhelming majority of the American people who support it. Some polls are, you know, just over 50%. Some polls it's as high as 70% of the American people. It depends on how you ask the question. But what I can say for sure is, Right now, in today's day and age, every poll is a majority to an overwhelming majority of the American people supporting Medicare for All. So when you say that's, quote, pretty far out from where Americans are, that is factually untrue, Pete. You have to stop saying that because you're making a fool of yourself because you are a fool. Either that or you're a liar. Which is it? Now, even on the issue of free college, there was a poll going back to the – 2016 primary, 58% of the American people supported free college. Now, I haven't seen a recent poll on that. If anything, it probably went up. But this idea of like, this is so far out, not what regular Americans want. It is exactly what regular Americans want. And for the record, this is what we mean when we say that the American people are on the left, is that the polls show when you go issue for issue, they're pretty much on the left. Now, Oftentimes, they self-describe as moderately conservative, but when you actually break down the political issues and give people the specifics, they're clearly left-wing. Like, for example, 80% of the American people want to raise the minimum wage. That's another issue where it's like it's not even close. So stop saying this, Pete, because it's not true. I I can't stand it when they say things that are not true, but they act like it's just so casual and so nonchalant and, like, they're nailing it or something when he's the one who's really burying the data and just saying what he thinks the American people think. Well, what you think they think is not correct. So shut up. All right. So, um, 
that's the first point. The second point is he's talking about, oh, my God, eliminating uh, student loan debt. What a crazy idea that is. We have $1.6 trillion in uh, student loan debt. The idea of wiping that out, I would argue, is the opposite of radical. You want to know why? Because we have endless amounts of money for things that everybody agrees were terrible ideas now. In fact, some of these ideas were criminal, like the war in Iraq, an illegal offensive war against a country that didn't attack us. That's going to cost $7 trillion when all is said and done. Okay? In Afghanistan, $2 trillion has already been spent. So this, again, this is stuff that's way more expensive, and we got nothing out of it. And we violated international law, and we killed civilians, and our own soldiers died. And they never, they never try to micromanage when it comes to the cost for all those issues. It's only when it comes to stuff for the people that they trot out these arguments. And even the idea of like, oh, what are you going to do? You're going to get free college, even a billionaire? Is that what you're going to do? What a silly argument to make. By that logic, you, you could use that, that argument for the fire department. You could use that argument for public roads. Oh, what are you going to do? You're going to let billionaires drive on roads that you're going to have taxpayers pay for? Is that what you're going to do? You're going to have roads? Is that what you're going to do? You're going to pay for billionaires? <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to put out fires of, of billionaires? They can afford it anyway. Why, why are you making taxpayers go towards uh, paying for the fire department? I don't understand. Why would you do something like that? And also, billionaires are way more likely, by the way, to go to private college, not public college. So the argument of like, oh, my God, you're going to pay for the college for billionaires? Well, no, they'll probably go to private college anyway. But even for if some of the kids of billionaires decided to go to public college, yeah, I view it the same way I view a fire department. I view it the same way I view roads. I view certain things in a civilized society should be off the table, should be off the table completely. One of those things is education. Another one of those things is um, health care. Again, not radical positions. This is what the rest of the developed world, the conclusion that they came to, and objectively speaking, their systems work better. Their social democracies work a hell of a lot better than our system does, where we have 30 to 45,000 Americans dying every year because they don't have access to basic health care. We have 30 to 40 million Americans who are uninsured. I mean, this stuff, like, the stuff I'm saying should be obvious, and that's why this is so frustrating, is that when he acts like this is a crazy idea, when every other developed country has one version or another of a single-payer system, that's insulting. I'm not one to play the O card, the offended card, but that is a, a, offensive. You act like, like you're trying to pull the wool over Americans' eyes, like, come on, this crazy idea of just, like, giving everybody health care? Why do you think we could do that? Because every other developed country fucking does it. Because every other developed country does it. And then the other thing is an argument that I've heard, um, not necessarily from Judge, but he did a similar one, is um, people say, well, why would you tax regular people to send rich kids to college? The way that free college is paid for is through a Wall Street tax. So whenever the argument is made, oh, why are you paying for, why would you want to take uh, taxpayer money from working class families to pay for uh, rich kids to go to college? Just understand that that is a massively ignorant argument. So the person doesn't know the details and doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about, or they're just liars. Because free college is paid for with a Wall Street tax fully paid for with a Wall Street tax. And we have money left over, too, by the way. So it's just, it's so frustrating, man. And by the way, it is crystal clear at this point that Pete Buttigieg has gotten progressively worse and worse and worse as time has gone on. He originally started out trying to pave himself like a left-wing-ish path. He had, you know, there were articles about how he praised Bernie Sanders when he was a younger man. He wrote an essay about it or whatever. But now the more he talks, the worse he is. 
I mean, it's really embarrassing at this point. And if you'll notice, he's one of these candidates who he can talk for extended periods of time and say nothing at all. And one of, the, one of his tricks is he'll be asked a question. He won't at all answer the question, but he'll pivot to some sort of um, philosophical reference, and he'll start quoting some philosopher or something, and then the idiot interviewer is too dumb to say, hey, you didn't answer my straightforward question, and they just sit there enthralled and fawning over this, this guy because he sounds intelligent. Listen, it's a wonderful thing to be intelligent. Intelligence is great. We want intelligence in a leader. It's a totally separate thing and a totally different thing when you use that intelligent persona, you use the fact that you're intelligent to try to override the fact and deflect from the fact that you actually aren't in favor of tangible policy positions that help the American people. And that is exactly what Pete Buttigieg is doing. He is a, a wonky technocrat who's simply in favor of the same kind of centrist, corporatist, neoliberal policies that have gotten us to the point where Donald Trump was elected because people thought, hey, maybe it's a populist alternative that'll bust up the corruption and bust up the establishment. So Pete Buttigieg is getting worse and worse, man, and he's making incredibly hacky arguments, and he's really misleading people, and it is incredibly frustrating. All right. <clears throat> I'm not done with Pete Buttigieg. I got one more on him. So Pete Buttigieg uh, spoke to CNN, and he shoved his foot in his mouth yet again. This time it's on the issue of campaign finance. Mediaite reports, 2020 presidential contender Pete Mayor Buttigieg a Pete Mayor Buttigieg. Wow, that is dyslexia to the max right there. Mayor Pete Buttigieg defended high-value fundraisers to CNN's David Axelrod, saying, we are trying to reach everybody at every level. You raised quite a bit of money, almost $25 million in a quarter, which was phenomenal, Axelrod said. You've done 70 fundraisers in places like Hollywood, Silicon Valley, Wall Street. Does it give you any concern? Quote, we are trying to reach everybody at every level. In addition to the traditional political work we do, we have a lot of grassroots fundraisers where tickets are very affordable, Buttigieg said. Until we change our campaign finance system, we are going to continue to have this problem that the people we elect and expect to spend their time solving our policy problems are spending way too much time raising the dollars they need in order to play the, to play the field, Buttigieg explained, including you, Axelrod asked, quote, yeah, how else can we fund the campaigns, Buttigieg responded. I know, I know, through small-dollar donations. Through small-dollar donations. Now, listen, the long-term answer is what's called clean elections, which means getting private money out of the political system, uh, you know, basically overturning the various Supreme Court cases, including Citizens United and McCutcheon and Buckley versus Vallejo, and basically making it so that it is no longer the interpretation of the Supreme Court that our Constitution says money equals speech. That is certainly not true. That's a ridiculous reading of the Constitution. If money equals speech, then you should technically be able to do murder for hire, and you should, you should have a constitutional right to prostitution. 
because if you get caught in the act of paying somebody for sex acts, you can just say, no, I'm not paying for sex acts. I'm just, this is speech. I'm saying I think sex acts are great. I'm paying this person and letting them know I think sex acts are wonderful. I'm not trying to murder somebody. I'm paying a hitman and just telling the hitman because money is speech. Hey, I'm just saying it would be great if my wife was killed, but I'm just saying it. I'm not actually paying for it. So this idea of money equaling um, speech is beyond ridiculous, but the long-term goal is to basically get a constitutional amendment to say money does not equal speech and we have clean elections by law. So we can't have billionaires and corporations buying elections. But we're not at that point yet. We don't have that yet. So then what's the best alternative under our incredibly corrupt system? The answer is very simple, small dollar donations. Step one is no corporate PAC money. That's the easiest form of corruption. Get rid of that corporate PAC money. And then step two is no you know, high dollar um, bundling dinners, which are, that sounds so funny and kind of dirty too, bundling dinners. <laughs> That's when, you know, you have these events in Wall Street and Silicon Valley and it's all, you know, thousands of dollars per plate and then rich people come and they pay you that way. Like, oh yeah, sure, I pay $2,000 for my plate, but this isn't corruption. Well, everybody in the room is making over a million dollars a year and they have very specific needs that they want from their politicians. Hey, lower the tax rate. Hey, let me get away with this, uh, you know, tax haven I'm using in the Cayman Islands, hey, deregulate us, whatever it might be. But it's a form of corruption where they're paying a tremendous amount of money and they get the ear of this politician. The politician is very likely to take that phone call when he's in office. And Joe Biden even said as much. He said it. He's like, I don't think it's corrupt, but sure, if you give me money, I'm going to take your phone call when I'm in office. Well, that's the problem. You're not going to listen to a grandma from Cleveland who didn't give you any money, who needs your help and who needs whatever, clean water, and they don't have it. Um, but you are going to listen to the asshole CEO who gave you money because of the bundling dinner. So, Pete, the answer is very simple. No corporate PAC money, no big money bundling, and raise money through small-dollar donations. But, see, the reality is a guy like Pete Buttigieg knows I can't raise as much money through small-dollar donations. Why? Because he's not actually representing what the people want. The people want Medicare for all. The people want free college. The people want a living wage. The people want to end the wars. The people want to fully legalize marijuana and free all the nonviolent drug offenders. There's a million policy uh, proposals that the American people want. Pete Buttigieg supports some of them, but on many of the biggest ones, he's MIA, and he's taking the opposite position, and he's gaslighting you in the process, too, by the way. Medicare for all, how could we do that? So he knows I can't out-fundraise somebody like burning through small-dollar donations. So what am I going to do? Of course I'm going to go to the rich people. But that's the problem, Pete. And then you defend it on principle and say something like, how else am I supposed to fund campaigns? Maybe have better policy ideas and then be able to raise from teachers and nurses and construction workers and regular folks. How about that? But see, the problem is he doesn't want to have those better policy ideas because he likes to gaslight there. How is that possible to do free college and Medicare for all when every other country is developed has it? So I, I'm telling you, Pete Buttigieg is getting worse and worse and worse. As time goes by, he's, it's crystal clear he's taking more of the Biden path, taking more of the mantle of centrism and slight tweaks to the status quo as opposed to real fundamental change. And it's kind of embarrassing. But, yeah, there you have it. Mayor Pete is defending um, big money fundraisers. Now, I will say this as a final point. He actually does take over 50% of his money in small-dollar donations, small-dollar being defined as $200 or less. So you would think if he wasn't a total political jackass, he would have clearly said, like, well, I take most of my money in small-dollar donations, but he didn't say that. 
Because why? He actually believes in principle that those big money bundling donors are, uh, dinners are totally fine. And that's a problem. That's a problem. Because I do think this is the kind of person who's going to take those phone calls and honestly believe, hey, this is just par for the course. What do you want me to do? Sure, I accepted money from some rich donors, and I took their phone call, but that's just the way politics works. What do you mean? It's not an option to not do that. I mean, that's really what his, his reaction here says. His reaction here says, hey, I'm for sale. You want to have a big money bundling dinner and have a bunch of asshole CEOs pay me? I'm willing to listen, dog. This is an advertisement. Hey, man, just so you know, I'm here. I'm here, dog. If you want to, if you want to donate, you want to talk. And that's the problem, is that even though his fundraising numbers are not that bad, because a lot of them are small-dollar donations, in principle, he's fine with the bigger money and representing their interests. So, not good. Not good, Pete. Very sad. Very wrong. By the way, just one more point on that. The way that you get any change in our system, you don't go in there asking for half measures. That's what Obama did, and ultimately we got very little change. We ended up getting his biggest change was uh, his biggest policy was an old school Republican health care law. I mean, that's just what it was. It was originally from the Heritage Foundation. That's what the individual mandate system is. It was a version of Romney Care from uh, Massachusetts. Newt Gingrich and Chuck Grassley supported this because they kept the private health insurance companies in control. So his biggest change was a Republican idea. Obama even said at one point, yeah, I'm like an mo- old-school moderate Republican. So this is what happens when you go in there asking for half measures. You get a half measure to the half measure, so a quarter measure, And the quarter measure is just a center-right idea. That's what it is. So based on that, every Democrat who's openly running on, I'm not for Medicare for all, like I'm for a public option, I'm not for free college, you know, I'm for slight tweaks and expanding Pell Grants or whatever, like all of those candidates, eliminate them. Because you are not going to get any real change that fundamentally helps working people who need it desperately. Because they're going into the negotiation saying, I'm already conceding, I'm already capitulating, I'm already half-repping your ideology, my political opponents. And so at the end of the day, you get Dickie McGee's axe. You get bupkis. You need to have somebody who's willing to go in there and say, no, not only do I want a Medicare for All system, I want an NHS-style Medicare for All system. Public funding of public institutions, bitch. All these private hospitals, they're now public. How do you like them apples? How do you like them apples? Start from that position, and then maybe the final negotiation is, okay, we're going to have, instead of a U.K.-style um, single-payer system, we'll have a French-style single-payer system where it's public funding of private institutions. You can still be private institutions, but we have a single-payer, so the government is a single-payer for health care, and fine. And, oh, you want us to concede a little further? will mandate that the Medicare for All system is not just one federal program. It's forcing each individual state to create their own single-payer system, whatever it may be. But you have to start the negotiation repping the ideology that you're supposed to rep. If you don't do that, you're going to get nothing. 
But a guy like Pete would be happy getting nothing and then going around bragging and pretending like he's so intellectual and he was able to get 3% change, which we've already, I've already seen that movie, and I know how it ends, and I don't like it. All right, Tucker Carlson time. He's, uh, he's been saying a lot of ridiculous things lately. So Tucker Carlson had some moments um, where he was against war, and it was good to see. He, he took on John Bolton directly, um, and he's repeatedly repped that position to his credit that he doesn't think we should do offensive wars. Uh, and that's wonderful. That is certainly better than anybody else in that time slot on Fox would ever do. We know that if Tucker Carlson's replaced in that spot, it's going to be somebody who's not only wrong and bad on all the other issues, they will also likely be advocating for war nonstop. So you have to give credit where credit is due on that front. However, having said that, man, does he swing and miss a lot, and does he have some terrible takes. Like his vicious attack on Ilhan Omar, which was totally uncalled for and honestly, deeply bigoted. You can go back and watch the segment I did on that where I explain that in detail and I show his comments. Uh, Well, now this is equally terrible. He's talking about climate change and the Green New Deal and um, certainly at least flirting with climate change denial. And um, his attack on the Green New Deal almost strikes me as dense on purpose. Now, maybe it's just a misunderstanding, but I find a hard, I have a hard time believing that because he would have to be a lot dumber than I think he is to come to the conclusion that he came to. So let's take a look, and then we'll break it down. Good evening. Welcome to a special edition of Tucker Carlson tonight this Friday. The thing about climate change is it's serious stuff, very serious. It's not like the frivolous concerns that fill your days, like, paying your bills or keeping your marriage together or putting your kids through school or fighting cancer. Climate change is bigger than that, way bigger. It's about saving the earth. It's about taking on what we're going to call an existential threat to humanity. It's a big deal, man. Nobody understands the gravity of climate change with quite the soul-searing intensity of freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. When Ocasio-Cortez talks about climate change and the Green New Deal, she promises will save us climate change, she often looks like she's going to start to cry, or start to yell, or both. And why wouldn't she? It's scary as hell. Time is running out. The world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. Like, this is the war. This is our World War II. Now, you can disagree with the details of the Green New Deal she's proposing, banning cars and airplanes, for example, shutting down the entire American energy sector, rebuilding every dwelling in the United States. You can disagree with that. But what you can't question is Ocasio-Cortez's sincerity. When she talks about climate change, clearly she really means it. Or does she? This is a man called Saikat Chakrabarty. He's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's chief of staff over in the Congress. He personally led the writing of the Green New Deal. The Washington Post just profiled Chakrabarty. In the interview, Chakrabarty made a stunning admission. All that stuff about the world ending, 12 years to save the planet, it was all a lie. Chakrabarty is not worried about humanity's demise. The Green New Deal has nothing to do with that. Here's what he told the paper. Quote, the interesting thing about the Green New Deal is it wasn't originally a climate thing 
you guys think of it as a climate thing? Because we really think of it as a how do you change the entire economy thing, end quote. That's about as direct as it could be. The Green New Deal is not designed to save the world. It's not about the environment at all. It's about power. Chakrabarty and Ocasio-Cortez want control of the American economy. They went looking for an issue that would justify a hostile takeover of the economy. Climate change seems scary, so they went with that. It's remarkable they're admitting this, but we shouldn't be surprised. It's happening. This kind of thing happens all the time. Manufacturing crises is the less preferred way to exert control over the country. A decade ago, for example, only wackos in bedsheets were called racists. Then, during the last election, Donald Trump was denounced as a racist. Now Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden are being written off as racists. What's going on here? It's not like there's more racism in the country. In fact, there's much less than there used to be. What changed is that the left realized they could gain power by creating boogeymen, by scaring you. Stupefy the masses with fear-mongering. By the time they've recovered, you're the one in charge. That's their program. Where do I begin with this one? Goodness gracious. So what's hilarious is that he ultimately ends up doing what he's accusing uh, Shoykat Chakrabarty and AOC of doing. He's like, oh, well, they just want power and they're just using fear to try to control you. The whole point of your segment is to try to fear monger about Shoykat and the Green New Deal and act like, ooh, there's this nefarious plot because they want power and they want control of the economy. Yes. <laughs> Tucker, you're smart enough to know the point that Shoykat was making, even though you're pretending not to know the point he's making. He's trying to make it nefarious, like, ooh, they don't want to control the economy. So you're fear-mongering. It's not them. You're fear-mongering. The point is that the Green New Deal, you, you know that part that says New Deal in it? Well, the New Deal part of the Green New Deal, the original intention, the thought was, well, why don't we make the Green New Deal like a new New Deal? So, in other words, the main focus of this Green New Deal is hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of new jobs created in the same way that the New Deal creative, created colossal numbers of jobs because we were in a depression and people were struggling, and FDR said, yeah, I'm going to use the Depression to rework the economy, but rework it in the interests of working people and regular people who've been left behind and who've been screwed by the system, screwed by the gangsters on Wall Street. So I, FDR, am going to do the New Deal and build infrastructure in this country and give people jobs. That's exactly what Shoikha means when he's talking about, oh, the Green New Deal, the original idea wasn't just to focus on the climate. It was to rework the economy. Yes, so the idea is use the Green New Deal to give people jobs, have a jobs program, you know, create infrastructure all around this country. So the Green New Deal is more of a new New Deal, give people jobs, improve their lives, and make us a thriving social democracy. That's the idea. Now, I know it sounds a lot less scary and a lot less sexy when I, somebody who's in the room for those conversations, tells you what really goes on. But, again, that's what I think Tucker's – he's smart enough to know that he's fear-mongering here. He's smart enough to know that this is nonsense, this idea of, like, they just want power and control of the economy. <laughs> Be a pro. 
afraid. Be very afraid. Yes, be afraid. We might end up like a terrible, downtrodden country like Sweden or Norway. More people might be employed with decent-paying jobs. The horror! The horror! We might copy one of the best programs that was ever done by the U.S. government, the New Deal. How can we live like this? What are you doing, man? Stick to just speaking out against wars, please. Because I'll tell you something. You're tolerable when you're going after neocons, okay? I like it when you go after neocons. You know what I don't like? You fear-mongering about basic social democratic reforms as you pretend like it's Shoikot who's fear-mongering and AOC who's fear-mongering. By the way, are you a climate change denier? Just stop being a weasel and just come out and say it. I'm asking you. I'm not proclaiming, oh, Tucker Carlson doesn't believe in climate change. I am sincerely and genuinely asking you because to your average viewer of this segment, they are going to go away saying it appears like he's very skeptical of climate change. It appears like he's not so sure it's real. Or he might be one of these people who says, oh, it's real, but what can we do about it? Humans didn't cause it and humans can't fix it. Because that's, the, that's the, the vibe I get from your segment here. But you can come out and tell us and you can say, hey, Kyle, you're wrong. I do believe in it. Pay fine, man. By all means, if you believe in it, wonderful. But this is, certainly comes across as the opposite. It certainly comes across as you're at the very least skeptical. And um, there's also a lot of stuff in there that's just flat out, far-right propaganda that's not even close to true, as if the, the New Deal or the Green New Deal has banning cars and airplanes. You know what, where they got that from, right? They got that from the idea that we're saying, hey, man, we have to totally get off fossil fuels in a relatively short time frame, whether it be 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. We don't have a choice because our, we're in a climate crisis and we can't fuck around anymore. So we have to get off of fossil fuels. They take that as oh, well, then in order to get off of fossil fuels, you obviously can't have airplanes because airplanes run on fossil fuels, so therefore you want to ban airplanes. They do these leaps of logic, and then they act like everybody should just take it and be like, oh, I guess that's what they meant with the Green New Deal. No, it's not. It's obviously not what we mean. We're obviously not in favor of banning airplanes. We're obviously not in favor of banning cars. I mean, the fact that they would make such a a bold-faced lie and, and act like, like, you know, there's going to be no pushback and, like, this is the truth. It's honestly embarrassing. That's one thing that the right has over the left in a way that helps them, which is their total and complete lack of shame. Like, they will just accuse the other side of insane things, like back with the Obamacare death panels, when the real death panels are the private insurance industry, by the way. But, like, they'll accuse them of insane things and then repeat it enough where people go, I guess that's what they I guess AOC wants to ban cars. I guess she wants to ban airplanes, right? You're utterly ridiculous. You're profoundly ridiculous. And, of course, he also sets up this false dichotomy of, like, oh, you know, these Democrats think climate change is so crazy and so bad and so much more important than, you know, crazy things like paying your bills. Why would you set up a false dichotomy like that? The reality is, you know who's actually fighting for people to be able to pay their bills? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's in favor of a living wage and a right to a union. She's in favor of wages going up. Bernie Sanders is in favor of those things. Are you? Are you? Are you for a living wage? Are you for a right to a union? Are you in favor of all these proposals that would uh, raise wages across the country or not? Because he sets up this false dichotomy as if, like, well, the Republicans are the serious people, and they're the ones in favor of raising wages, and the Democrats are so silly and ridiculous that they're all trotting around talking about climate change, and that's it. That's not true at all. 
The Republicans are not in favor of raising wages. They're not in favor of a living wage. They're not in favor of a right to a union. And the Democrats are, or at least the good Democrats, the justice Democrats are. So I, ugh, this is like gross propaganda. So listen, I said it once, I'll say it again. Tucker, just focus on wars, buddy. Just focus on wars, because you're tolerable when you're going against neocons. But when you're doing grotesque propaganda like this, as you pretend like it's Shoycott who's doing propaganda, man, is it insufferable. So the Trump administration is struggling to defend the horrendous conditions at the border. Um, Kellyanne Conway went on Fox News to try to do exactly that, and it didn't go too well because you actually have a decent job here from Chris Wallace, who's the host. Now, let's take a look, but I want you to pay attention to see if you can catch the just disgusting, brazen contradiction, because this is something I've noticed this a lot recently where they'll say one thing, and then they'll eventually say this next thing, which contradicts the other thing, but they act like it doesn't contradict it, and that's frustrating. Let's watch, and then we'll discuss. Because this is what came out of the Inspector General for the Department of Human Services, of of, 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 uh, Homeland Security, that you should report on July 2nd with this warning, and I want to put it on the screen. This is DHS... Inspector General, management alert. DHS needs to address dangerous overcrowding and prolonged detention of children and adults in the Rio Grande Valley. And I want to show, because the reporters were able to take pictures of the McAllen, Texas Senate that you visited with the Vice President. They're up on the screen. This was the pool report. Almost 400 men were in cage fences with no cots. The stench was horrendous. Some of the men were sleeping on concrete. They began shouting and wanted to tell us they had been in there 40 days or longer. I understand. I I understand that President Trump is trying to stop the flood of people across the border, which contributes to accommodate those who are here. Which contributes to the overcrowding. But how does it help for the president to minimize the situation and say it's much better than what they had, or for Vice President Pence and Kevin Corksby's to say they're all being well treated when your own I mean, you can look at the conditions there, it's a disaster. Well, let me just say a couple things that are facts. First of all, not every facility is the same. And so But I'm talking about that one. Okay. Well and I'm talking about the one that the media who were on the same trip with us completely ignored in all of their coverage. They're also completely ignoring the briefings we received from the Brave Customs and Border. What do you say about McAllen, Texas, Kevin? What I would say is this that that facility was meant to be, this is what I was briefed on, that facility is meant to be a 72-hour holding facility. It's not equipped to keep a single male who has broken the law by coming here were apprehended. If you just want to let them go, then say that we just are open borders. And let's all be as honest as some of those uh, Democrats raising their hands. But is it help for the president to say, well, their really conditions are pretty good, and for Black Panthers to say they're pretty good? In, in plenty of facilities, they, are, they have improved, including the one that we saw with the families. I saw the House Oversight Committee. Okay, so that segment goes on and on and on. 
the claims that are made are the following. The conditions are fine, so everybody needs to calm down because they're fine, and you're making a mountain out of a molehill, and there's really nothing to see here. They say that on the one hand. And on the other hand, they say the conditions are really bad, and you should blame Obama for that. You have to pick one. You can't have both. Because on the one hand, you're saying the conditions are fine, and everybody needs to shut up and get over it. And on the other hand, you say, well, we agree the conditions are really bad, but it's not our fault. Blame Obama. How do you not see that that's a giant contradiction? The, the camps can't be both in good condition and bad condition at the same time. But see, they're just, this is how you know the main point is just deflect criticism and save face and save our own ass, is that this is what they end up saying. Just fling mud against the wall, fling arguments against the wall, and whatever sticks, go with it. And so they end up making contradictory arguments, and they don't even realize it. So listen, here's the reality. Put aside the fact that they're massively contradicting themselves. Here's what I would say. No, don't make the argument that the conditions are fine. They're not. They're really terrible. Now, a lot of people would say, well, just don't come here in the first place, and they wouldn't have to worry about those conditions. Except the reality is a lot of the countries that these people are fleeing are broken. And they're broken, at least in part, because of our policies towards those countries. I mean, definitely the drug war has obliterated South America. It's obliterated Mexico in many respects. So, you know, you have these broken narco states, and you have people escaping almost certain death or extreme poverty. And, yeah, they're going to flee north. And so, you know, maybe get back to the root problem and stop the drug war and stop horrendous U.S. foreign policy as well. But putting that aside, the point of that is there's a reason why these people are coming. It's not just like they wake up one day and say, let me go, like, leech off of the welfare system in the U.S. and do nothing the rest of my life. No, it's let's escape certain death or extreme poverty. And also when we get to the U.S., most of these people want to work and live productive lives and just create a better future for their kids. But bottom line is, we should all acknowledge the obvious reality, which is the conditions are bad, and I don't care who you blame. Of course, the conditions were not good under Obama. Yes, there were still kids in cages under Obama, but the Trump administration has objectively made the conditions worse. But I don't care. For both of those things, I don't care about the partisan angle of this. The bottom line is, you obviously have to have better facilities that can manage this issue without also treating people like they're less than human. And I don't think that's a lot to ask for. I don't think it's a lot to ask for beds. I don't think it's a lot to ask for functioning AC. I don't think it's a lot to ask for clean water. There were, you know, some people drinking out of a toilet because a faucet was broken in one of the holding cells. Um, Now, I'm not saying go nuts. I'm not saying you get a pool and you get to sip a mojito by Uh, outside while you sunbathe. No. But what I am saying is the way it works right now is disastrous. And anybody who's reached a minimal level of objectivity can acknowledge that. So if we're the United States of America, we really want to be a country that believes in human rights and civil liberties and basic human decency and dignity. Well, yeah, we should fix these, um, these holding facilities and make them better. Now, I know some people on the left to the left of me would argue, well, no, just eliminate all these facilities. But hold on. If we, if we agree that a country is allowed to have borders, it's not like, you know, we wake up tomorrow and we have no borders at all, um, then you have to admit that there is a process once you get in here. Now, if, you, if you're like me, you believe the process should be humane. You believe the process should make sense. You believe it should be 
relatively speedy, and, it, and again, it should treat people with dignity and decency, but there needs to be a process. And when somebody gets in the country, what do you do? Do you immediately say you can, you can go anywhere for any reason at any time and that's it? Or do you say, no, we do have facilities where you're processed and where you, you know, will be determined if you could stay in the country, but it's, um, it's a reasonable process. And the facilities are not like reminiscent of some of the worst atrocities in human history where you jam massive numbers of people into these tiny cages and they don't have the ability to take care of basic human needs. So I do think that we should improve the conditions at these uh, facilities. I don't, I don't think getting rid of them is a functional policy where anybody would really get on board with it beyond like a small group of very loud people on Twitter. Um, but stop making the argument of everything is fine because that's the argument that gets under my skin more than any other argument. If Trump just made the argument, hey, it's really bad there and blame Obama, well then, okay, it's incumbent upon you, the current president, to improve the conditions. And just do that and shut the fuck up, as opposed to trying to save faith at every turn and act like, you know, there's nothing to see here. So, perhaps unsurprising, but the Trump administration isn't good at this whole logic thing they're simply trying to save face, and they're willing to say whatever in order to do it. Okay. So sit down and buckle up for this next one. This gets pretty ugly. USA Today reports the following. A federal judge on Monday blocked a Trump administration regulation that aimed to reduce prescription drug prices. The administration does not have the authority to require drug makers include their prices in television ads. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta ruled in Washington, D.C. While President Donald Trump vowed to lower pharma prices last year amid public outcry, The judge's ruling came one day before the disclosure rule was set to go into effect. Drug makers fought the rule with a lawsuit in June, quote, no matter how vexing the problem of spiraling drug costs may be, Health and Human Services cannot do more than what Congress has authorized, Meta wrote. The responsibility rests with Congress to act in the first place, in the first instance, I should say. Meta did not share drug makers' argument that a disclosure requirement violates company's First Amendment rights of free speech. Instead, he noted the policy could be effective in controlling rising prescription drug costs. Okay, so basically what he's saying there is it's not unconstitutional to require pharmaceutical companies to put their prices in every ad, but it would need to go through Congress first in order to do it. Here's why that argument is total bullshit. We have regulatory agencies. We have executive agencies that are regulatory agencies. That's the whole point of these agencies. Now, spending bills have to go through Congress. I mean, that's clear. That's in the Constitution, and that's the way it's always worked. This is not a spending bill. This idea very 
clearly does not involve the federal government spending any money. It requires forcing pharmaceutical companies to add the prices to their ads. So this is like basic regulation 101. And this argument from Amit Mehta is total horseshit. And guess what? This is an Obama-appointed judge, and he struck down this Trump administration rule, which is one of the only good things the Trump administration has ever done, and it got slapped down. Are you kidding me? Now, let's be clear here. This plan from Trump, this is not a cure-all. This isn't the end-all, be-all. He might act like it was the end-all, be-all, but that's because he's a ridiculous person, and he's also very kind to the, to the uh, big pharma companies. But yeah, this rule, certainly better than nothing, and the philosophy behind it is if you force these insurance companies, not insurance companies, excuse me, these pharmaceutical companies to put their prices up with their ads, well, what's going to happen? It's going to be embarrassing for them to put... What are you going to do? You're going to write fucking $10,000 for these pills that you're trying to hawk to people? Nonsense. It's, it, it would make it so that people realize that, oh, my God, this pharmaceutical crisis where they're price gouging the shit out of us, this isn't just in people's heads. This is real. Because then you make it clear to everybody in the country, not just the people who are taking the drugs. Everybody in the country knows, like, oh, this is a real big problem. So the idea behind it is it will certainly force prices down at least a little bit. And I do think that that's, there is some truth to that. With that extra transparency does come a lot more responsibility and accountability. And because it, it would shock the conscience for a lot of people. So this plan that would work, they slap it down on, bogus, on a bogus pretense here. I mean, really? That's going to be your argument? Your argument is, oh, Congress has to pass it. It's got nothing to do with spending. This is basic regulation. It, no, this rule, of course, can go into effect. So this is embarrassing, and this is terrible, and, I mean, you're not supposed to say stuff like this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Judge Amit Mehta, people should dig into his, um, whatever his investments might be, whoever he, um, you know, hobnobs with at the country club, because I have a sneaking suspicion that this dude has people, friends in high places in the pharma companies, and he's really just doing them a favor. Because I think he knows, especially if it's an Obama-appointed judge, he's smart enough to know that the argument he used here is total bullshit. Um, but he used it anyway, which makes me think there's some foul play at work here. So, really, really sad. One of the very few things Trump did that's good, and an Obama judge smacks it down. So the pharmaceutical companies win yet again. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, I got Mike Ravel released an ad. It's pretty devastating. And then Charlemagne the God endorses somebody. And I got more beyond that as well. So don't go anywhere. We'll talk about that and more. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
bitches. Let's let's talk about Mike Ravel. We haven't spoken much about him, but we will talk about him now. There's the ad right there. Okay. So Mike Ravel is trying to make the debate stage for the next Democratic debate. Um, And his team released this ad, which I'm told actually ran on MSNBC. Take a look. I'm the most progressive record of anybody running... Mr. President, I will vote to authorize the use of military force against Iraq. I do not believe this is a rush to war. I believe it's a march to peace and security. I do not view abortion as a choice or a right. I do not vote for funding for abortion. The concept of busing, that we are going to integrate people, is a rejection of the whole movement of black pride. Both political parties will understand the need for more police officers. And more prisons have predators on our streets. We have no choice but to take them out of society. I don't think 500 billionaires are the reason why we're in trouble. Well, folks at Trump aren't bad guys. I have the most progressive record of anybody running. I'm Mike Gravel, and I approve this message. That was a good ad. I would have added as well... The thing that he said about Paul Ryan being right when it comes to cutting Social Security and Medicare, I think that's uh, equally as powerful and it deserves to be in there. But nonetheless, it's still a good ad, and he's, you know, he's trying to expose Joe Biden to an audience that's probably being spoon-fed the idea that Joe Biden is awesome. Um, so Mike Ravel is an interesting character. Now, he announced a run a while ago now, and what's hilarious is he's actually polling better than a, lot, <laughs> than a lot of candidates who are, like, really being taken seriously by mainstream media. I think in one poll he was ahead of Kirsten Gillibrand. He was at, like, 1% or 2%, and you had, like, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand and, and some others at 0%, which is kind of hilarious. Because the main catch here is that Mike Ravel has said, um, or his team has said, I don't know which, that he's not – He's not running to win. He's just running to be an issues candidate to get on the debate stage to push certain issues. Now, um, some people have disagreed with me on this, but I really, really, really dislike that kind of stuff. I hate the I'm not running to win people because it is by definition a gimmick. What you're doing is a gimmick. You don't actually want to be president. You're not actually trying to win. You're just doing a gimmicky thing, okay? So, and, and if you think, hey, that's not cool, Kyle, he's your ideological ally to some extent. Yeah, but so was Lawrence Lessig in, when he ran for president in 2016. And the second he hopped in the race, I was like, what are you doing? Because he's another guy, his whole thing was like, it was actually a little different than Gravel. Uh, Larry Lessig said, no, I am running to win, but my only issue is getting money out of politics. And the second I get money out of politics, I will step down. So I'm a single-issue guy. This is the only issue. Corruption is the only issue that really matters because it affects all other issues. So the second I get that done, I will step down. And everybody was just like, fuck, what? (laughs) Why are you doing this? Yeah, we get it. Corruption is bad, but what are you doing? And at the time, Bernie Sanders was already in the race, and it was like, why don't 
it just seems ridiculous that you're running and it's, it's just too gimmicky. There's too much going on around it to run and say, oh, I'm just trying to get in the debates to push certain issues. And, okay, what are those issues? Well, for Mike Gravel, one of the main ones is foreign policy. And it's like, okay, well, there's also Bernie and Tulsi Gabbard who are saying the exact same things, and they actually have a chance. So for you to say, it just really rubs me the wrong way when people say, I'm not trying to win. Okay, then get out. <laughs> what do you want me to tell you? That's ridiculous. Um, and then also, the thing is, and this is, a, this is a, something I've struggled with for a long time, is what do you do? when you have somebody who says a lot of the things that are right and make sense, but they, they make it so easy to caricature them. It happened with Dennis Kucinich. He's a great guy. He's right about a lot of stuff. And then he ran for president, and the second he got on the debate stage, it was like, hey, remember that time you said you believe in aliens and you saw aliens? And his response was like, and he just shot himself in the foot. And it's like, hey, dude, listen, bro, if you're going to run for president and you're right on a lot of the issues, do me a favor. Even if you think you saw some fucking aliens, put that in your back pocket and uh, shut the fuck up about it. Because when they delegitimize you by saying you're the alien guy, guess what? Now, without even trying, they've successfully dragged all the issues that you care deeply about that you're right about, and they, you've self-marginalized them. So because you're so silly in some other ways, they've now self-marginalized you because now people go, oh, well, Dennis Kucinich also wants single payer, and he also wants to end the wars, and, like, kooky beliefs, just like fucking seeing aliens. So there are some people who are just not the best messengers to actually win, and what I care about is fucking winning. Now, having said all that, Mike Ravel's a good guy, man. He's a hero in many respects. If I'm not mistaken, he's the guy who read the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record, which proved how we were, the U.S. was doing war crimes using Agent Orange on innocent villagers and bombing innocent villagers. And so I have nothing against the guy personally. In fact, I think he's wonderful, and I would agree with him on many, many things. I just really don't like the I'm running and I'm not trying to win thing. Now, having said that, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think he may have just qualified for the next debate, and many others have done it as well. And I think what Gravel's goal will be is to just totally take out the establishment hacks. He will try his best to take out the establishment hacks. And we'll see how that goes. I hope that he succeeds in, you know, basically being a bull in a china shop and taking out Kamala and taking out Joe Biden. But I'm actually not totally sure he's in the next debates yet. So I don't know. I guess go to his website to check to see if he's in the next debates. And if you want to see him in the debates, then go ahead and, you know, donate a dollar or whatever it may be to get him into the next debates. Um, but nonetheless, that's my breakdown. And then also, apparently they said they're going to use the funds, like whatever leftover funds he has, they're going to use it to go to Flint, Michigan. Well, if that's true, then that's wonderful, and I give them a lot of credit. Um, and I hope that they do that. But again, it's like two teams are running his campaign, and I don't know – I don't know who they are. I don't know if I trust them. I, and I know you're not allowed to question these things in lefty circles, but this, these are my actual thoughts. I don't know what's going on. It just seems a little fishy to me that two teens popped up out of nowhere and they're running a campaign where the guy's not trying to win. And it's like, what? Do you, what? I don't get it. I just don't get it. But listen, my cynicism and my skepticism can be dead wrong. And maybe they're just wonderful people. And maybe they really are just trying to push these important issues. And maybe they are just trying to take that money 
and um, donate a lot of it to Flint, Michigan. That's certainly possible. That's certainly one of the things on the table here. So um, either way, that was a fantastic ad from Mike Ravel and his team. And um, the money is certainly not all being wasted if that's what it's going towards. If it's going towards these, like, ads that try to eviscerate the worst of the corporate candidates. But nonetheless, there you have it. Okay, let's go to Charlemagne the God. I always feel weird calling him that. <laughs> so Charlemagne the God went on CNN, and um, he seemingly endorsed a candidate here. Take a look at this. Let's say the nominee is not the person you want it to be. Mm-hmm. I don't know who I want it to be yet. I, I, I think I want it to be Senator Kamala Harris, only because I feel like you know, Donald Trump is setting the stage for the first woman president, specifically a woman of color. Because if you see how women of color have rallied since Donald Trump has been in the White House, whether it was the Women's March that Tamika Mallory and Linda Sarsour and Carmen Perez put together. Or Alabama. Or yeah, Alabama, yeah, the way they turned out in Alabama. Right. Like, it seems like the stage is being set for a woman of color president. And when you see somebody as qualified as Senator Harris is, it's like, why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you rally around that? So I really like Charlemagne the God, and one of the main reasons I'm doing this segment is just to, like, try my best to explain to him why I think this is the wrong way to go. Um, So hopefully he sees this segment. I don't know. Maybe you guys can help out with that and send that to him and say, hey, Charlemagne, here's somebody who's just commenting on something you said regarding Kamala Harris, whatever it might be. But listen, here's the point. Again, I like him. I like Charlemagne a lot, which is why I'm doing this segment. First of all, to the idea that somebody's qualified, which is, you know, hey, maybe they should be president because they're qualified. In today's day and age, the idea of being qualified, I would throw, throw it out the window. And here's why. Everybody knows this system is totally corrupt and totally broken and favors the wealthy, favors corporations, and is rigged against working people. It's rigged against regular folks of all different races, religions, and backgrounds. So when you have somebody who's been in this broken system, if anything, that's a strike against them. Now, if they've been in this system and they've been fighting for the people the whole time, that's a different question, in which case I would agree with them. Hey, she's qualified, but also... Here's the list of the five or ten or twelve things that she did where she made crystal clear, I'm fighting for the people, okay? But she didn't do that, man. She didn't do that. So just a few of the things that Kamala Harris did that to me are like huge red flags, that it's a no way for me. She laughed at the idea of legalizing marijuana in 2014 when she was asked um, by a reporter The reporter said, hey, your Republican opponent is in favor of legalizing recreational marijuana. Are you in favor of that as well? 
she laughed at it. And she said, no, I'm not in favor of that. She was against the idea of body cameras on police officers. She is incredibly pro-Israel, and she spoke at APAC. Okay? And so, as a direct result of that, the human dignity and, and rights of Palestinians are pushed to the side. She refused to prosecute Steve Mnuchin against the um, advice of her own office when she was DA of California. Now, why is that so important? Well, Steve Mnuchin was a Goldman Sachs lackey, so he's one of these Wall Street goons who screwed people over. But at the time, he was the head of One West Bank in California. One West Bank was illegally foreclosing on people early and kicking them out of their homes during the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. I remember we covered a story where he literally kicked, they kicked a grandma out of their house because she was slightly late on a payment. And it was illegal because they foreclosed on her early. Her own office told her, you got to prosecute Steve Mnuchin. And she did not prosecute Steve Mnuchin. Now, why? I don't know. Maybe the idea is, hey, Steve Mnuchin is a powerful guy and he has a lot of powerful friends. And God forbid, if I want to run for higher office later on, I might want some campaign contributions from him or his friends or Goldman Sachs or whoever it may be. So I'm just going to be hands off on that one. I don't know why she did it, but either way, she shouldn't have done it. She should have prosecuted him. She defended California's three strike laws. That Those are laws pushed for by private prison companies who just want to put asses in jail cells. Okay? Three strikes laws are abysmal. They are horrendous. They ruin lives. And then finally and most importantly, she supported civil asset forfeiture, which is just a fancy way of saying it's a legalized robbery by cop. If a cop pulls you over and he sees some stuff and he sees some stuff in the car, sees some money, let's say, he could just take your money. Hey, here's here's $3,000. I jacked your money. Now, I'm just going to say, I think you were about to use this in some sort of a, of a crime. I don't have to prove anything. I'm flipping the burden of proof, in fact. So I'm just going to take your money, and I'm just going to take your car, and you have no recourse. That is civil asset forfeiture. There's mo- more money and more property stolen from people from civil asset forfeiture every year than there is burglary done every year. Think about that. So the cops are robbing people more than burglars are robbing people. Okay, this is what she supported. She supported the status quo. She supported the system that propped up the powerful. She supported the system that screwed over regular people. And don't forget this name because this is the most important point. There's a guy by the name of Daniel Larson. He was wrongfully accused and he was locked up. And later he had his conviction overturned by a federal court. And he was ordered released. And Kamala kept him in prison. Why? Under a technicality. It had to do with his paperwork not being done on time. And a guy who shouldn't have been locked up in the first place was still behind bars. Because Kamala Harris said, I don't care. Keep him there. Is that what you support, Charlemagne? Listen, like I said, I like you. I think you're a good guy. I like your stuff. But if you're really a good guy, I don't think you can support that. (laughs) So, you know, what does somebody like myself care about? Very simple. I, I want... Medicare for all, I want everybody to be covered. I want free college. I want a living wage. I want to end the wars. I want to legalize marijuana. I want very specific things. The only person I see who I'm confident will fight for every single one of those things is Bernie Sanders. Because not only is he right on those policy positions, 
His track record backs it up. He's been fighting for these things for decades. And he also said, when he was asked about it, hey, how are you actually going to get this accomplished? He actually said, oh, I'll go straight to, so let's say I'm pushing for Medicare for all, health care for everybody in the country. And I'm being blocked because some blue dog Democrats who are very conservative Democrats don't want to vote for it. They can expect me to show up in their states and rally people in their own states to get them on, fa- on board with Medicare for all. I will go to Joe Manchin's house. I will go to West Virginia. I will hold rallies. I will call him out by name. And I will make sure that massive political pressure is put on him so he flips his vote to be in favor of Medicare for all and we get health care for everybody in this entire country. I mean, listen, man, you, what are you, you going to do? You're going to... You're going to say that this is not the way to go? The dude literally marched with in the civil rights movement. For some reason, you're not allowed to say that anymore. Politically incorrect to bring that up. But I think it's relevant, especially when Joe Biden was cutting deals with Strom Thurmond, backroom deals with segregationists on busing, while Bernie Sanders was out there getting arrested, fighting for civil rights. So what I would say is this, man. You can't. You can't solely look at the fact that because she's a black woman, wouldn't it be great if we had a black woman who took out Trump? It depends what she's for. If the black woman was Nina Turner, I'm in favor of it because she's for all the right policies and she'll fight for them. If the black woman is Kamala Harris, not so much. See, this is why people, when it comes to identity politics, it's often used to deflect from substantive policy positions that would improve everybody's life. And that's why people get so frustrated. Like, is that all that matters? She's a black woman, therefore she should be president, and that's the end of the conversation? I don't think that's the best way to pick a president. I would love to see history. I would love to see a female president. I would love to see a female woman of color president. But they have to be in favor of the policies that will help this entire country and fix this entire country. And they can't just be playing the political game to get elected to just maintain the status quo. And that's exactly what I think Kamala Harris is doing. Okay. Now let's go to Rokana. He is doing some more of God's work. So Rokana is leading the charge in showing how to actually resist Donald Trump and not just, uh, you know, resist from the right or just come up with slogans? No, he's actually fighting. So The Intercept reports the following. Democrats in the House of Representatives on Friday passed an amendment that would sharply restrict President Donald Trump's ability to attack Iran without congressional authorization, attaching the language to an annual must-pass defense bill. The measure, which was sponsored by California Democrat Ro Khanna and Florida Republican Matthew Gates, would prohibit the Pentagon from spending money on any military action against Iran unless Congress has declared war or passed a resolution authorizing the administration to use force. The bill contains an exception for emergency situations in which U.S. armed forces are under attack. So um, Ro Khanna tweeted the following, Only six Republicans voted against the war in Iraq. Yesterday, 27 Republicans voted with Democrats to pass my amendment to block a war with Iran without congressional approval. 
Our growing bipartisan coalition is fighting for restraint, diplomacy, and no more endless wars. See, this is the kind of bipartisanship that people can get behind. It is a gross kind of bipartisanship when Democrats and Republicans agree to deregulate Wall Street and to cut taxes for the rich. It is a wonderful kind of bipartisanship when Democrats and Republicans agree to do criminal justice reform and, you know, uh, lessen sentences for stuff like marijuana. And it's a wonderful kind of bipartisanship when they join together to say no more war. So the final vote in the House was 251 to 170. Virtually every Democrat and even 27 Republicans were on the side of, yeah, if Trump wants to offensively attack Iran, he has to get approval from us first. So that's wonderful. Uh, Here's Roe talking about it on the floor of the House. This will be the most important foreign policy vote in the United States Congress. This bipartisan amendment makes it clear that the Congress appropriates zero funding for any offensive war in Iran or another war by choice. The Supreme Court has made it clear that when Congress limits funding for a war, Congress's power, not the executive power, is at its peak. And when this amendment passes, it will be a clear statement from members of Congress on both sides of the aisle that this country is tired of endless wars, that we do not want another war in the Middle East. I will make one final point before I yield to many colleagues. The other side and people will argue that this may limit our ability to respond to an attack on the United States or our allies. That is a patent lie. Nothing in this amendment limits the President of the United States for doing anything that he needs to defend the United States of America or our allies as he is authorized under the War Powers Act. What this will prevent is another trillion-dollar war in the Middle East. Frankly, what it will prevent is what this President promised the American people not to do, to get into another endless, costly war in the Middle East. I now want to... That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Now, there are a lot of elected Democrats who honestly get a little bit, like, jealous of people like Ro Khanna and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because they see that, oh, my God, these guys are getting all the press. Why? Why are they getting all the press? Well, as a general rule, it's because they're actually fighting for people. They're willing to stand up to Trump and resist him not from the right and resist him not just with silly slogans, but resist him substantively on issues that matter. So that's why people know who Ro Khanna is. People love Ro Khanna. That's why people like Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib. It's because everybody knows who they are. They know who they are, and they know that they're fighting for them. So if you want some of that positive, popular news reporting and press, okay, if you actually fight for the people, you will get that positive press as well. And not positive press in terms of mainstream media, but positive press in terms of people will love you on Twitter. People will love you in real lefty circles. You'll hear, they'll hear about you on this show because I give people credit when they do the right thing. So everybody send Ro Khanna some love. He did a wonderful job there. Um, and he's leading the charge yet again and showing how to resist in a way that's substantive and in a way that makes sense.
All right, here we go. Let um, You guys are going to get tired of these segments, but nonetheless, I'm going to do it because I love these kinds of segments. So we have another victory in that wonderful battle of ideas that Rave Dubin loves to talk about. Um, now, you guys are probably so tired of these segments by now, but I'm going to cover it anyway because I love them. So another caller spoke to David Pakman and gave details this time, like, a lot of specifics on how he turned to the right wing on YouTube. Like, what was the descent? What was that pipeline, as they call it, that led to the right? Let's listen, and then I'll break it down. Uh, this is Joseph from Michigan. Hey, Joseph. What's going on? Uh, I just wanted to, to, to give a big thank you. Yeah. Uh, because you, it, you and Kyle Kalinske uh, really helped pull me out of a really, uh, really far right place uh, that I had been over the past few years. Hmm. How did you get into that far right? Place? So, so uh, but my family was pretty liberal, so I was just, you know, kind of like another caller I called not too long ago. Yeah. You know, I just kind of, you know, the, when I started getting into politics, I just automatically assumed, oh yeah, I'm just, you know, going to be on the left. But uh. What, ha- what happened was I came across a, a video from a YouTuber known as Shoe on Head, mm-hmm. and uh, I was like, oh, you know, just a person on the left criticizing people on the left. But then from her, I got to Armored Skeptic, her, her, her boyfriend, now fiancé, I think. And from him, I got to Blair White, and it just kept going down this rabbit hole mm-hmm. until eventually I was watching uh, until eventually I was watching Stefan Molyneux in uh, Lauren Southern. And, uh, and eventually, uh, I watched. A, eventually, I watched a video by T.J. Kirk, where she references uh, Kyle Kuhnski. So I went to watch him, and in the recommended of the video, watching from him, I got a video from you. And I was watching you two for like the past six months, and you've really uh, deprogrammed me, pulled me out of the place I was at. What would you say was the most extreme belief that you actually uh, 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 sort of incorporated into your set of beliefs? coming into the U.S. That's interesting. That was, you know, a bunch of people that have called in and said that they were pulled into the right and then got out of it, a lot of them say that they were pulled into the right with immigration-related, you know, sort of pseudo-nationalist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant stuff. That That is interesting. I mean, it's anecdotal. It's just people who call me. But that is notable that a bunch of them mentioned that. So we learned a lot there. Um when it comes to that issue of immigration, yeah, that is one of those issues where people um, can kind of get hooked in and then they go further and further right. And it's interesting because it's actually one of those issues where if you really think about it, a lot of, um, a lot of the language is like cloaked and a lot of the, like they really take the rough edges off of the ugly truth of what they really believe. So you have a lot of people who, and I'm not saying everybody who believes in, you know, strong borders or whatever is by definition a bigot, because I don't think that's true. But you do have a lot of people who are bigots who can then turn around and use that more mainstream conservative rhetoric as a gateway, because they talk about being, you know, strong on immigrations, uh, on immigration, having a, a strong border, and it goes from, you know, oh, no, no, we're just against illegal immigrants. We're fine with, you know. We're fine with legal immigrants. 
But then every now and then you'll notice there will be like little slip-ups and they'll kind of show you, well, no, it's not just that we're against illegal immigrants. We're also against illegal immigrants. And then it becomes even more clear, well, they're, you know, hey, if they're legal immigrants and they happen to be from Norway or Sweden, well, we're kind of fine with them. But if they're legal immigrants from Mexico or South America, well, those are the ones we have problems with. And it's just the more time goes by and the more you really flesh out what these people are trying to say, it becomes clear that with many of the people, again, not all the people who are in favor of a strong border and are conservative on on immigration, but with a lot of them, it does kind of come down to, like, brown people bad. Keep them out. (laughs) like that. And, again, I want to be crystal clear, which is why this is now the third time I'm saying this. I don't think that everybody who's in favor of a strong border has that position. But if you pay close attention – Every now and then, there will be these moments of conservatives where they kind of accidentally let it out. It, it happened with Trump the other day, where Trump told um, sitting congresswomen to go back to their country. What? <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was born in the Bronx. Rashida Tlaib was born in Detroit. Um, I don't remember who else he was. Ilhan Omar was the only one who was born outside of the U.S., but she's now an American citizen and a congresswoman. So, and the idea of, like, oh, they're not assimilating. Tucker Carlson said that about Ilhan Omar. She's a congresswoman. What do you mean she's not assimilating? Do you mean she just criticizes America and you're uncomfortable with her criticizing America when you criticize America all the time? What does that mean? To tell Americans to go back to their country means what? You're just seeing the skin color and you're going not, not like me, not American enough, even though you're literally American. They did this with Obama, with the, uh, oh, he's Kenyan. What? Where's your, where's your birth certificate? Oh, here it is. Here's my birth certificate. That's the short form. Where's the long form? Okay, here's the long form. Say something now. I'm not sure I buy that. Okay, well, here's the fucking newspaper announcement of me being bored in Hawaii. Take a look at that. This maybe could have been fake, too. And then Trump, finally, he moved the goalposts all the way to, I got to your college transcript. Bro, what are you doing? It's almost like your default setting is brown person other Brown person, bad. Not American enough to him. So that's what you got to be afraid of, because there are many people who, you know, they'll use that legal, illegal immigrant rhetoric, and then every now and then you'll notice, like, oh, they slipped up and they went further. And then it, it's like a, they cloak their beliefs, which is always funny to me, because the right oftentimes likes to pride themselves as being the straight shooters, but so often they just kind of tap dance around what they actually believe. A lot of these, especially these um, characters in new media on the right. Whereas somebody like me, you come, I'll say exactly what I believe. I don't have to cloak anything. I believe in Medicare for all. I believe in free college, a living wage, ending the border. Uh, ending the borders. <laughs> Hilarious. That's actually not what I believe. I believe we can have borders. Um, uh, legalizing marijuana. Like, you know what I believe because I tell you what I believe, and I'm incredibly straightforward about it. But a lot of these characters on the right, it's like, there's a lot of stuff between the lines, and a lot of stuff is cloaked, and they use weasel words, and it's just like, what's your angle, bro? It's really weird. Um, but now let's get to the specific pipeline here. Now, he says he went from shoe on head to armored skeptic to Blair White to Stefan Molyneux, and then he was watching a TJ Kirk video, and TJ referenced me, he started watching me, and then he watched me a bunch, and then he watched David Pakman a bunch, and now he considers himself deprogrammed. So I think that the idea of a right-wing pipeline, in many instances it's true and it happens, and there are 
there's plenty of evidence for it because people exist who say, I started here and I ended up all the way over here and, you know, some people all the way to Richard Spencer or whatever. Um, and that's all fair and that's fine. And this is people's personal experience. But I will also say we got to be careful because a lot of a lot of people, I think, are it's unfair to act like all they are is a gateway to the right. You know, you've seen those arguments, a guy like T.J. Kirk, um, who I like and who's a friend of mine, and, uh, and there are many people in my audience like him, many people in my audience don't like him, but bottom line is, you, you just can't say that a guy like him is solely a, a, a gateway to the right when he's kind of been clear about what he believes every step of the way, and to the extent that he has agreements and disagreements with the right, he says it. So it's not just like, his only function is not a gateway of the right. It's also he reps his own ideology and he talks about what he thinks is true. And if some people watching then take a next step and go to somebody more extreme than him, I think it is kind of fair to say, well, that's on them. And David Packman actually brings up this point in the segment here and a part you didn't see there, but he says, one of the things I'm concerned about is people being so, like, wishy-washy and so malleable that they're just, it, they're, it's so easy to convince them that they just, it's almost like they can't handle YouTube because it's like they just automatically agree with whatever anybody's telling them, and he's concerned about that. Now, thankfully, this guy said it was four years that was the descent into the right-wing beliefs, and then it was you know, whatever it took, six months out to get out of it. But, yeah, that is that is maybe an issue as well, the issue of how equipped are people to deal with differing viewpoints and determining what's true and what's false and what framework of the world do they have to really digest information and then break it down and determine what they think is true and what they think is not true. And I think, listen, th- the main thing to me is, This is what I want to tell people more than anything else. You're allowed to say, hey, I agree with with these people over here on X, Y, and Z. I agree with these people over here on A, B, and C. And they're totally different politically, but that's where I stand. Because I think people oftentimes, they think like they they have to default to an entire worldview. Like, oh, whatever these right, whatever Stephen Crowder is saying, I agree with all of it. Why? Why? <laughs> uh, you know, it's possible to say, well, I think he's right on that, but then all these other things I think he's wrong on. Like, you're allowed to use your mind. You're allowed to be an independent thinker. You're allowed to come to your own conclusions. And you don't have to default to whatever somebody's saying, whether it's a strong personality or whether it's somebody who you're reading and philosopher from back in the day or whatever it might be. You're allowed to pick and choose and determine what's true based on your own research and what jives with you the most. So while I do think this right-wing pipeline is a real phenomenon, I also think we shouldn't over-rely on that being a thing because people do have agency and they can think for themselves and they should be willing to draw lines and say, I agree with them on this, but I don't agree with them on this or whatever it may be. And I also think it's just a little bit unfair maybe to some of these people who like shoe on head or armored skeptic or, like, they would probably say, I, I don't condone people going, you know, way to the right of me, but starting with me, and 
you know, they would probably contend I've made arguments against those right-wing beliefs. So it's not, it's on them that they went there. It's not on me. So it's a little bit of a messy reality here where I think both things are true. I mean, it's true that you have, you know, a dissent that a lot of people go in towards very odious beliefs, but it's also true that there's a dissent out based on other YouTubers and commentators. And it's also true people have agency. And I think most people are people we don't hear about where they will just say, I agree with some points over here and some points over here. And it's not, you know, it's not this giant pendulum swing from one set of extreme beliefs to another set of extreme, extreme beliefs. So whatever. Um, Either way, I think it's an interesting conversation. And I'm always happy when I hear these, um, these deprogramming stories, because it means that some of what we do is landing and, that's always going to feel great. Okay. Let's go final story of the day. Hansy Uncle Joseph. Uncle Joseph Biden is at it again. Um, I think that his staff let him know about this hacky argument that he can use on the issue of health care, and he immediately loved it and immediately warmed to it. And so he did a little video on it here. Let's take a look, and then I'll come back and explain to you why this is the most disingenuous and terrible argument I've ever heard. Some said yes, I said absolutely not. I believe we have to protect and build on Obamacare. That's why I proposed adding the public option to Obamacare as the best way to lower costs and cover everyone. I understand the appeal of Medicare for all. The folks supporting it should be clear that it means getting rid of Obamacare. And I'm not for that. I was very proud the day I stood there with Barack Obama and he signed that legislation. Never before has anyone ever been able to do that in the White House. 20 million Americans gained coverage, over 100 million with pre-existing conditions finally got protection. The most important peace of mind. You know, I know how hard it is to get that passed. I watched it. Starting over makes no sense to me at all. I know the Republicans do everything in their power to feel Obamacare. They still are. But I'm surprised that so many Democrats are running on getting rid of it. The Affordable Care Act was a historic achievement for President Obama. And if I'm elected president, I'm going to do everything in my power to protect it and build it. So, in other words, Joe Biden is lying. He says there that I knew Republicans were going to fight to repeal Obamacare, but I didn't know so many Democrats were going to do the same. Except they're not doing that. There's not a single Democrat who's in favor of repealing Obamacare. He's making it seem like there's this transition period where in order to get Medicare for all passed, a couple months before, a year before, whatever it may be, we all get around and say, well, okay, now we repeal Obamacare, right? Right, let's do it. And then the Democrats and Republicans agree, let's repeal Obamacare. Utter nonsense, completely untrue, not based on anything. It's basically a smear. The smear is uh, Bernie Sanders and all these Medicare for All proponents. They want to repeal Obamacare and then do Medicare for All. Nonsense. Obamacare would stay as is, and Medicare for All actually is building on Obamacare. That's what that is. 
because he tries to, he speaks out of both sides of his mouth, because then he also says, like, well, I'm in favor of building on Obamacare. But what do you think is the next step? It's the Medicare for All system. That's the ultimate end goal, at least if you care about actually getting everybody coverage and cutting the price. That's the way you do it, Medicare for All. So Joe Biden is absolutely lying here, and it's disgusting. Not a single Democrat is in favor of repealing Obamacare. The Republicans are in favor of it. Not a single Democrat is in favor of it. We want to do the next logical step, which is cover everybody, cut prices in half, and make it a right. That's what Medicare for All is. So he is being a complete and utter weasel, and it's obvious. I mean, listen, you heard the goofy-ass music in the background, like the fake patriotic music. And, of course, uh, Biden goes back to his standard trick of, like, Obama, Obama, yes, Obama, yes. He's trying to use Obama's popularity to leech off of it to say, me, I'm the person who will continue that legacy of milquetoast centrism and corporatism, yes. Obama is an interesting character because his poll numbers are high, but his philosophy in office was not great. Now, I contend that the reason behind that is people are able to separate the person from the policy, and they just like Obama because they like Obama. They, you know, they, I don't know. He's a nice guy. I like him. He's a good leader. Like, that's people's general take, certainly Democrats' general take, is that he has a high approval rating because of that. It's not like when you go into the specifics of everything Obama did that they're like, oh, nailed it 100%. No. The poll show... The American people, definitely in the Democratic Party, overwhelmingly in favor of Medicare for all, free college, living wage, way to the left of Obama. But what Biden's trying to do there is act like I am 100% the logical next step in the legacy of Obama. So that's why you support me. But who else did that? Hillary Clinton. And she lost. So let him make his hacky arguments all day long, and we'll continue to bust them up, because they're exactly that. They are hacky, and in this case, it's an outright lie. Okay, we are done, baby, we are done, baby. Okay, we have an earlier show on Thursday. We will have a show at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time. I know that's early, but it's got to be done. So uh, it's just a one-time thing. The, it, it's just a one-time thing to have the earlier show, but nonetheless, we will. Anyway, love you guys, and I'll see you then. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Much love. Peace.